Welcome to the Almost Famous podcast, the show where we get the opportunity to talk to professionals at the top of their field in the music industry, discussing their journeys and experiences. In this week's episode, I speak to Lewis Jameson from Music Declares Emergency. We not only talk about his impact on the music industry that may have resulted in a bicycle crashing into a tree, but also the accelerating power of Music Declares Emergency. He talks about the unifying force of music, what the slogan, no music on a dead planet really means, and keep listening to hear what happened when the incredible Billie Eilish gets involved. Here's my interview with Lewis Jameson. You're listening to Almost Famous, a music industry podcast championing independence powered by The Famous Company. Whether you're an artist or music industry professional, ensure you don't miss a beat by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Lewis Jameson is a co-founder and communications manager of the environmental movement Music Declares Emergency, whose tagline is no music on a dead planet. It has garnered much attention amongst the music industry big names such as Billie Eilish, Radiohead, Bon Iver, Arcade Fire, The 1975 and many more. He has been working in the music industry for over 30 years across A&R, artist management and PR. He has managed the press for some of the biggest UK names like Elbow, Madness and Worked With Oasis. Now he has turned his attention to the environmental issues in the music industry as people who are in the music industry, we thought, hey, we got to invite this guy on. So, Lewis, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. Like everybody else, I'm too hot, but I'm good. <laughs> it, it, it is warm, it is warm, but we'll, uh, we've, we've, we've turned the aircon off just for the recording. Um, <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's heating up a little bit. But the first question I want to yeah. ask you then is, because, um, of course, we, uh, we are music industry through and through, What's on your rider? What's on your gig mm. rider? My gig rider. Well, it's going to be healthy these days. It wouldn't have been 20 years ago. Uh, but now it's probably going to be something like red pepper, hummus, salad, halloumi, flatbread, fizzy water, maybe some nice chocolate as well. Oh, okay. You know what? I'm getting ideas already. I know, I know what a man <laughs> like you is going to be having for lunch. So uh, I'm, glad. I'm glad you do. I don't. <laughs> we need to talk then about your extensive experience in the music industry. Can you um, tell me a little bit more about uh, your your background and and how you got started? Sure, sure. Well, I'm from a I'm from a little place just outside Blackpool called Ansdell. So I had a fairly normal childhood. For that part of the world, I went to the local comp, same mates all the way through. Um, I always loved music. My mum was a big music fan, so I grew up listening to a lot of Motown. She was a mod in the 60s, so I grew up listening to a lot of Motown and uh, Beatles. She was big on and the Kinks, and then and then into the 70s, the kind of solely disco stuff that came out of uh, that Motown 60s sound. So it was always around me. We always had Radio 1 on when I was a kid as well, and I don't know, about... 11 or 12 I'd already started buying records and the first record I bought I think was Parallel Lines Blondie so I'd have been about 8 I think with my own money this is and I was into Adam and the Ants and, and a family friend took me to Manchester to see them which was amazing because I was only 10 9 or 10 blew my mind so I kind of had this thing that I, I wanted to somehow be in this world but obviously Blackpool isn't even then Blackpool wasn't at all cooked in now it has gigs in the summer uh, at the Empress Ballroom but even then there was nothing but I kind of fought my way through school like many people do and was one of those kids who was really annoying was always going on about things I'd heard on John Peel those little gang of like goths and indie kids and I was part of that kind of you know in American films I was the the, the one in the overcoat in the breakfast club you know the, the gloomy one oh, yeah. that thinks he's cool and um, and then when I went to Leeds University which I literally chose because when I did the open day I met some people from the ENTS organization. They said, oh, we've got this thing where you can like crew and you can steward and you can DJ. And you guys are like, right, I'm coming here. Uh, and and I always joke, I, was, I did like three years at Leeds of music industry. So I, I DJed there and I got to know people and I started promoting club nights, a place called the Phonographique in the Merrion Centre and worked with the Utah Saints, if you remember them. I used to DJ with them, a place called the Gallery um, and did lots of stuff at university, promoted a night at the Polytechnics, now the Met Uni. And got to know people. Um, and so when I came down to London to do a literally terrible job for the money, after I'd done a master's, I stayed an extra year 
to do a Masters, which essentially I stayed next year to carry on promoting and DJing, if the truth be told. Um, I just hung around until uh, a guy called Tony Morley, who now runs Leaf Records, Leaf Label, up in Yorkshire. He he said, do you want to come and work in the warehouse at 4AD? And I kind of just said, yes, because it was like, I'll do anything. I'd literally sweep the floors kind of thing. Uh, and I've got a big mouth and, and I'm quite pushy. And so within a year of that, I'd realised nobody was really signing bands to 4AD. Ivo, who owned and ran the label, had disappeared off to America. Well, not disappeared, he'd gone to America. Uh, and he'd left a chap called Colin there who, who was long-standing. In fact, I'd taken Colin's job in the warehouse and Colin was signing bits, but I, I kept finding bands and eventually uh, the kind of dam broke and they went, do you want to sign bands here? Yes, please. So I did five years of signing bands and, and A&Ring what they already had. Um, one of which, which was Mojave 3, came back years later because I was members of Slow Dive. Uh, when I kind of was involved in getting Slow Dive to reform, which is still something I'm really happy about because to see old friends do so well is beautiful. Uh, and I signed a band called Guskus. Uh, it was the first band I signed. So I signed a nine-piece art collective from Reykjavik, Iceland as my first signing, which, you know, stupidity of youth. You look back and you go, well, I just signed a four-piece from London, but nope, I signed a nine-piece from Reykjavik. But, they, you know, I, it kind of set, set me on my way, that kind of thing. I always... Whatever I've done, I've always looked to work with people I like. I've looked to work with people that inspire me and are a bit different. And I've always been an absolute sucker for people saying, well, that won't work. Uh, and going, right, I'll prove it will. Um, and then after 4AD, 4AD hit all kinds of financial troubles. Britpop killed us, really, because what happened was the old idea of independent music morphed into this kind of homogenous blob of having to be chart successes. And with the exception of Lush, there wasn't really anything on 4AD that was designed to be chart. Um, but of course, sales went down as all the money went into charty indie bands, indie bands in inverted commas. Um, and to be honest, I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole. I think in the uh, biography, Martin Aston's extremely good biography of 4AD, one of my bosses says that I should have worked at Creation, um, which is absolutely true. I just wish he told me at the time and I would have gone and worked at Creation rather than telling me that they wanted me to stay there. Uh, it's a bit late in the day. But um, after that, I again, I'd luck is a lot of my story. So lucky in that Tony Morley said, do you want to come and work it? Lucky in that I landed somewhere where they needed somebody like me at the time to do what they offered me to do. Uh, and, and I'll be honest, I was on my ass. And, uh, and then another very good friend, now long longer in the music industry, a chap called Julian Carrera. He worked at Hall or Nothing Publicity, Terry Hall's behemothic PR agency that had Radiohead and Manson and the Mannix and huge bands. And uh, she took a shine to me, um, bless her. And she said, why don't you come in and just help out for a bit? Because I, I really was just sitting at home playing PlayStation. I didn't really know what to do. I didn't really fit in the majors and I didn't really want to work for another Indian. And, and um, within a month of being there, she said, do you want to be a PR? And I said, well, I'm an A&R. She said, well, actually, you're technically unemployed. And I said, that's a fair point. Yeah, I'll be a PR then. And then Albo appeared from nowhere. Well, not from nowhere. I'd seen Albo in the city in 98 uh, and loved them. And gone to talk to Phil Chadwick, who was and still is their manager then, about maybe signing them to 4AD. And then looked at the queue and went, every major under the, ah, there's no point. I, you know, the, the checkbook line. And I was like, well, I've got, you know, I've got literally loose change compared to these people. It's not going to work. But he phoned me and he said, um, yeah, Albo are, uh, <laughs> they've been dropped. They've been dropped. Seagram's have bought Universal, the distillers. Um, and looked at the bottom line and dropped everything. And obviously they hadn't released anything. So they were massively in debt in that weird accounts department way of looking at things. Um, so we hatched this plan to put out two EPs. So I kind of was their PR, but I was more than their PR, which I think I've stayed to this day. And uh, and those two EPs led to the deal and the deal led to a very rollercoastery ride, but ultimately a Brit Award and, and the Mercury Prize and, you know, Sunset Slots of Glastonbury and Guy Garvey being the most loved man in England and all that kind of, which is beautiful because they're wonderful people and they deserve all of it. 
and from there, I built a roster. Editors were a big part of that. Polyphonic Spree were an important part of that. I, I missed the Spree. They were the greatest band to work with. Just the sheer visual impact was hilarious. Um, we actually made somebody crash a bike into a tree in Hyde Park. So we're doing a photo shoot there. And this person was so busy gawping at them, they ran their bike into the tree. I came round to all these people in white robes, like around them going, you okay, man? I think they thought they'd gone and they descended. It was beautiful. <laughs> Um, and, then, and then I set up my own thing and took some of my bands with me. And, uh, you know, I'd managed Larrikin Love whilst I was at Hall or Nothing. We'd done a little label. So I did bits of management. Slow Dive obviously became a big part of that. I managed Victor's at Sea for a point, various other bands. I worked with Jack Daniels for a bit on their music activations. Basically all kinds of different ways of trying to put music and culture in front of people. And, and just, you know, to be honest, you know, the guiding principle of it's better than working for a living, which I've followed for, you know, 30 odd years now. Um, but Music Declares came about because about four years ago or so, I've always believed that music has a political kind of element to it. I've always believed music should be a cultural force. I've always believed artists should be expressive. Not all artists, obviously, if you don't want to be a political artist, don't be one. But those who, who want to be, I've always believed they should be supported and their vision should be, you know, kind of, uh, kind of uh, encouraged uh, and, and developed by those around them. And and a conversation with some friends about why is music not involved in this? I mean, this is like the biggest thing we, we're facing. It's not like the big, it is the biggest thing we're facing. You know, music really, you would have thought it would play a part in this. And new musicians felt very conflicted about what they did for a living in the context of a climate emergency. I knew some people who were doing things. Pete Quick at Ninja Tune was doing a lot of stuff in terms of his business practice. I knew the people at Julie's Bicycle who'd been banging this drum for 10 years at that point and were getting some movement and ultimately kind of landed in this group of people um, who were thinking the same, who'd all come from different places. Some had come from XR, some had come from Culture Declares, some had just come from the music industry. And we we hatched this diabolical plan to, to create essentially a gang, um, which would be Music Declares Emergency. And at the time, the, the thing to do in climate world was to have a declaration of a climate emergency. Everyone was doing it, councils, governments, businesses, everyone. So kind of thought, well, you know, if we're going to have a gang, a club, we need some rules. So there's your rules. So that's what we did. Um, and obviously it became something far greater than we imagined it would be very quickly. Yeah, it's, of course, we're, we're talking about the heat today. Um, hmm. Kind of showing. Yeah. Sides. yeah. Um, there's There's been increases in, in temperature across the whole of Europe. And it is it is a never ending kind of new story i guess uh, there's always something involved in it but but i'm i'm really curious it was there anything within that illustrious career that you've that you've of course um you you went from uh labels to labels and and then you work with these great talents what was it that sparked your interest then in in the environmental issue before of course you you, you kick-started music declares emergency was there one right. moment no, I don't think there was a moment. It was more a, a gradual realisation. So, you know, I, I come from quite a political background, personally political background. Um, and my politics have always been quite left-leaning, you won't be surprised to hear. Um, and, and I think I, I got to a point where I realised there'd been this huge cultural shift within the country. And, 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 and seeing that through the, the, the various prisms of culture as well. So the, the, the easiest way to explain it is... I used to go to the football with my dad when I was a kid. He made me be a Manchester City fan when I was very young because that's what he is and that's what his dad had been. So I had to suffer. Uh, and boy, did I suffer because we were terrible for years. Um, and I remember stopping going in the mid-80s because myself and my dad got trapped between away fans and a police horse charge. And had one of the stewards not owned one of the big gates and pulled us in, I might have ended up under a horse. And I remember turning to him and saying, I'm not doing this again. Um, and and just before I went to university in 89, he, uh, he you know, could tell he, he liked the idea. It was like, should we go to one more game before I go, you know? And I hadn't thought about it. I've been going to Manchester because it's the nearest place to do anything from where I, you know, I lived and was born. So I'd gone to the Hacienda and I'd gone to, well, I'd gone to both nights at the Hacienda, the Temperance Club, I think it was called, on the Thursday, which was the indie night, uh, but also Saturday, you know, the kind of big boomy house night. 
So I'd seen those changes. I'd hung around Manchester. I'd seen the changes in fashion, the roses and all that kind of stuff. I'd done all that. But it didn't occur to me. We went on the terraces and it was totally different. And, and it was, you know, inflatable bananas and people clearly coming down from the night before and all that kind of stuff. But the vibe was very different. And that old us versus them thing had gone. And that, that cultural shift was, was then followed by that second cultural shift around Blairism, where all those kind of political realities I'd grown up with in the north of England, the kind of left-right trade union bosses, all that stuff, it just melted away. It's all this amorphous mess. And there's lots of positives to that. But in terms of my politics, the downside of it is everything becomes less tangible. It's less obvious to see where progress could come from. And the gradual realisation for me was that the progressive way of thinking was shifting from finance and, and, and man-person per power, you know, you know, kind of workforce power, into the environment, into climate, into preserving the natural landscape. It, it was the same set of beliefs, the same set of, of morals and values, which were about creating a better world for everybody, but just transposed through a new lens. And, and interestingly, you know, one of the attacks on the climate movement from the naysayers and, and, and those who still will claim that there is not a climate issue is that it's just a veiled left-wing plot to make all the rich people give their money away. And in a sense, it's, it, it's like, well, I can see why you think that. It's not a veiled left-wing plot to make everyone give their money away. What it is, is the old argument about redistribution of resources and wealth so that everybody has a standard of living that makes the world a better place for everyone to live in. And that was kind of where I ended up coming to this, was trying to find a new way to, to essentially reframe an old conversation to, to better the general population's lives. I mean, I come from a place, Blackpool is literally a mess. There are all kinds of wonderful people still working in Blackpool to try and help the people there. But if you go there, it's got the highest levels of deprivation, the most food banks, it, it like tops every chart on the, this is not a great place to be list of things. And when you grow up around that, you've got two options. You either go, ah, oh, I give in. And there is this thing called shit life syndrome that's been identified in Blaupool. Wow. The people just just so overwhelmed by it, they just go, bugger it. And they don't bother. Or you, you go the way I went, which is, no, this is wrong. And I'm going to spend as much of my life as I can using every opportunity I can to try and change this. And I suppose the, just the lens widened. As I traveled, I didn't travel at all as a kid. I couldn't afford it. But when I became an A&R, I started flying here, there and everywhere. I mean, it was the most step-changey life you can ever imagine. <clears throat> My fourth flight in an aircraft was in a two-seater aeroplane over the centre of Iceland with one of Guskus's fathers, who was a stunt pilot. So halfway over the volcano, he went, oh, I do stunts. Would you like to do some? <laughs> so I was doing loop the loops and barrel rolls and all this mad stuff. That was my fourth time in an aeroplane. And, you know, so I was very fortunate, have been very fortunate to have all kinds of life experiences that certainly my teachers never thought I could have. And most of my community wouldn't imagine I could have had. Um, and so in a sense, you know, part of this is about recognising that opening up the world to people and making people realise, uh, making people understand or believe that there is a better life out there for them is not just good for them, it's good for everybody. And at the moment, the way forward on that is to deal with the climate issue in every facet that it, it you know, it occurs in. And the, the only way to do that is to have a new systemic kind of approach that recognises that what we're doing at the moment is not working and that we have to change those systems. And ultimately, if the, those people who are resistant because they're scared they'll lose something could just have the leap of faith, they may find that they actually get something better out of it. And it's a persuasion kind of train we're on, trying to make people see the benefits of it continually. It's not about us versus them. It's about trying to bring everybody into a conversation where they see the merits of what needs to be done. Yeah. So, so what do you do then? What is Music Declares Emergency? Well, at first, there were two things we were going to, well, we set out to do two things. The first thing was to, to persuade the music industry to, to be better. Yeah? You know, the music industry had uh, and, and already reached a point where it kind of had its hand up a little bit. And it was saying, yeah, okay, we get it. We fly too much. 
Um, although there's an important differenti differentiation there. We're not talking about bands flying to the US to tour. You know, people have to work. And, and, and I think that's important That's what's baked into it to music to close. We're all from the music industry. We are not coming to it saying, this is all bad, it needs to stop. People have to fly to work. They don't necessarily always have to fly. And there's a conversation there about being better at how we do things. But not everybody needs to fly to go to a conference. Not everybody needs to fly to go to see the band when they play. I mean, I've done it as a manager. You know, that your band goes on tour and you look at the dates and you go, oh, I like Berlin. Maybe I'll go to the Berlin gig, you know. And then you, just, you kind of retrofit the justification by going, well, the German label will be there. And Germany's a big market. Really? You know, the truth is you fancy going to Berlin and New York's terrible for that. You know, every manager goes, I'll do the New York show. It's like, of course you will. Of course you will, because it's a good excuse to go to New York. So, you know, it was about changing that thinking. And, you know, of course, sometimes you do need to go to New York. You need to sit in a room with people to do business and to, you know, face to face, as we found during the pandemic. It's desperately important. Maybe you don't need to do it as much. Maybe there's a mix and match thing. Um, you know, pressing vinyl on 180 gram. Nah, you don't need to. 140 sounds as good as 180. You know, it doesn't sound a lot, but every time you do it, you lose 40 grams of vinyl. That's important, you know. Um, yeah, packaging, distribution, all that stuff, you know, all the way through to your office. And, and you know, like I say, I mentioned them before, Julie's Bicycle, who are the science people in this whole equation, are brilliant at coming in and auditing and seeing where those things can change. And they're doing, they were doing that and they're doing more of that. So we wanted to try and help them create conditions where there was more desire for that. Um, and beyond just doing it for the general gains and sustainability and environmental practice, we also recognise that the second part of what we wanted to do, which is probably the, the more vital part, which was to create conditions for artists to speak out and use their cultural power, use their positions to encourage people to think about these things and engage with these things and sometimes commit to things, couldn't happen unless the industry changed. Because every time an artist said something before that, they would get shot to pieces by certain elements of the media with a vested interest in denying this stuff because it's an easy shot, isn't it? So, you know, rich superstar X tells us all to not go on holiday whilst flying around the world playing shows, which is an incredibly kind of uh, partial way of looking at it, but very easy shot. So if we could create conditions where the music industry ch was changing, then the artist was in a position where they could say, well, I'm not in control of all that stuff, but they're doing that and they're doing that and they're doing that. But more importantly, the actual lobbying of the industry saying we are changing would push back against some of that already. And it would encourage more artists to speak. And by encouraging more artists, we would have a greater community of artists and frankly, strength in numbers. Um, you know, it, it, we always say, we always said, it's like booking a festival. Until you get your headliner, everybody might play. The moment you get your headliner, everybody else wants to play, assuming you get the right headliner, you know? Um, and so that, that, was the, that was the starting principle. Now, what's happened in the intervening three years is the industry has made huge changes. You know, there's been individual actions across the board. You, you know, you go, you look at what Festival Republic are doing on their festival sites. You look at what AG are doing across their, you know, festival portfolio. You look at the O2, you look at the OVO venues, which are all renewable energy. But then, you know, you start to dig down. They've all signed the, the Music Climate Pact. All the labels globally have, have signed up to the Music Climate Pact, which puts them uh, on the pathway that the UN have got called the Race to Zero. So there's now... A, you know, a quantifiable way forward that will lead to a net zero kind of recorded music industry. Beggars and Ninja announced their own pathways ahead of that. Impala, which is the European Independent Trade Association, doing a lot of work around it. Win World Independent Network, again, on the music climate pack. So all of that's taken care of. So what more and more of our work now is about is about taking those opportunities and working with artists to engage people because the other thing we realized very early on was everybody's scared. Everybody knows it's a problem, not everybody, but things like 80% in the UK know that there's a climate emergency. They accept that. You ask them what we should do and they, they kind of go in all different directions, you know, it's a bit. <laughs> so, and, and a lot of people say, I don't know. And I don't feel I have a say in it. And that's even more important. So, our belief, our theory, our, our, our mission is 
to use artists to encourage people into the conversation because we believe that musical artists alongside other people like that can make people feel part of the conversation in a way politicians, scientists, climate advocates, all that, they just can. People feel excluded from it. And the example I always use is not from music, it's from football. And it's when Cristiano Ronaldo <laughs> stood at a press conference, swiped the bottle of Coke from in front of him, replaced it with a bottle of water, and Coke's share, share price nosedived the next day. That's the power that a cultural figure can have in encouraging people to look at something differently. So that that's essentially, in a nutshell, what we do. Obviously, there's a lot more to it. Mm. Um, but that's basically what we're trying to do. You know, you mentioned... Uh... Julie's bicycle. Now I know you're not the spokesperson for mm. them, so I just want to quickly just fit this. Happy to be. Yeah, I was just going to quickly fit this in there. Um, can you just explain a little bit more about what they what they are and what they do? Then, well, not not more sure. or less like what they do. You've kind of explained that, but just just a roundabout kind of uh, statement on on who they are. So they were created by the music industry. I think it was about 14 years ago to audit the carbon footprint of the music industry. That was their starting principle. And what that has now developed into is uh, a group of people who engage with all kinds of different culture to audit their footprints, to understand their sustainability programs, to encourage innovation across that kind of field uh, and to partner to essentially drive the cultural industries further forward into greater and greater sustainability positions. What they do is is very, very important and very, very impressive. Yeah. Um, and they are very good friends of ours and they are perfect for us because we are not, that's not what we do. So, you know, in a sense, there's this interlocking set of, of, of organisations now that, that's starting to come together where we will create the conditions where people go, I want to do something, they'll come to us. And then we'll go, well, if you want to do that side of it, if you want to understand where your business is and, and find a way to improve your sustainability. I mean, there's obviously business case for this as well. You know, if you use less energy, you spend less money. And, that, you know, that's part of the conversation that, again, that's that's the conversation that I was talking about. You know, that, that idea that it's not all about taking money from some people and giving it to others. It's about better ways of doing things. Um, so we'll pass them on in that conversation to Julie's Bicycle. In the same way that if somebody wants to know how they can make their, you know, outdoor PAs work better, we'll pass them on to Chris Johnson at Shambhala because he, you know, he has powerful thinking, which is all about that. So we're starting to see this interlocking group of, of communities and organisations across the music industry. And I guess we're, maybe we're not the front door, maybe we're the front of the march with the banner going, hey, come over here, it's fun. <laughs> you know? With a mouth. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Look, I know you keep on uh, answering things as uh, as we, um, but yeah. I, I want to get I want to get something that's more a little bit like uh, a more personal question, just for you. Sure. What, what's been the toughest part about all of this? <laughs> Working without any money for a year was relatively tough. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are days when you go, why am I doing this? This is insane. You know, because it started, we genuinely didn't think it would be as impactful as marketing people say, or have the traction, which is their other favorite word, that it's had as quickly as it did. Um, you know, when, when we were setting up the declaration to launch, the the moment one of the majors, and I won't say what order they came in, but the moment one of the majors signed it, the others signed it. And at that point, I thought, oh, actually, maybe this... Because I thought, you know, we'd get the usual suspects to start off with and then we'd have to, like, you know, battle our way up the hill and through the ditches and, you know. So we started a lot quicker than I thought. And that's testament to the thinking in the music industry. And maybe we just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, but that then... Having done that, it became you know the idea was that we do it, and I'd do it. My idea was I'd do it in the gaps because I ran my own business, so you know I'd do a week or two, you know, day a week, maybe two days a week, you know. Um, I mean, I've never really had a very good line between work and not work. I kind of am always half at work, um, but it, it started to be much more demanding on my time. And, you know, you said at the start, you know, I'm the comms person. Well, yeah, but there aren't that many of us. So I'm the comms and half the finance and some of the HR and, you know, all of it, really, uh, alongside Faye Milton and James Osborne. And those are the three of us essentially are the ones that day to day hold it together. 
So that was tough. Realizing that people can love you, but they won't necessarily give you the money that, that you would hope they would give you to do it. That's always a little tough. Um, and, and maybe that there's an echo of that, you know, as an A&R, the bands I signed, everybody thought they were really cool, but none of them really exploded. And I always found that somewhat frustrating. So people go, yeah, but your bands are cool. They'd be, yeah, but your bands are selling millions and you're going to end up being vice president of super records. And, you know, but I've, I've long since shed that kind of youthful ambition, but there is a, a little bit of me that thinks there's an irony here in that the thing that we're trying to, or I'm trying to get people to see through music declares emergency, which is the real value of things is somewhat mirrored in the conversations I have with people about funding us, <laughs> which is also about the real value of things. So anybody with money listening to this, can you just contemplate the real value of things rather than the perceived value just for a second? That's as strident as I'll get here. Um, so that's been tough. And, and also, Trying to strike a balance because you know, having been on the other side of the fence, I'm very aware that going to artists and their representatives, their long-suffering managers in particular, and saying, hey, we're really great people and we're doing a really great thing and you don't want your grandkids to die or have no food and topsoil and water and flood and famine and ice caps. And so could you get your, you know, your, your artist to, to do something for us? is really enraging, frankly, because you're kind of sat there as the artist rep going, why why me? Why, why are you picking on them? Why don't you go and ask somebody else? When do we become like the saviors of the planet? So trying to find a way of finding the people who want to work with us, having a conversation with them about how they want to work with us, overcoming their natural kind of fear of getting dragged into something and then having to do something they're not comfortable with has been a real learning process. Um, and and, and I did, like I say, because I've been on the other side of it, I hope I've, I've had a couple of steps forward from some people. Um, some of the approaches to me from charities over the years have just been jaw-droppingly like, really, you shouldn't do that. But, um, but it's still an awkward conversation to start off with. And for all my kind of, you know, bravado here, I find it difficult to to cold approach people I don't know um, and not feel like my internal monologue is going, stop it, stop it. You're making a fool of yourself. Leave them alone. So that's been a real challenge. And when you're a charity, you kind of have to find a way of doing that because otherwise another charity will do it. <laughs> there are far bigger fish in the sea than us out there. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll flip that question on its head. You kind of answered it anyway i was gonna uh ask you about the highlight then what has been the best part but i guess getting all those oh that's easy yeah, yeah go for it <laughs> the, the the highlight of md of music declares yeah. easy billy eilish walking into the american music awards with no music on a dead planet written on her i mean that was just ridiculous in the best possible sense of the word i mean she was the biggest artist on the planet and subsequently, we, we, we've got to know people around the team. I wouldn't say we're friends. Don't get me wrong. Um, but we have met Maggie Baird, her mother, who's an inspirational figure. And, and we've met people in the team and so forth. But, but that was essentially Phineas, I think, her brother, had seen the No Music on a Dead Planet slogan um, and loved it. It's still pinned on his Twitter. It's his pinned tweet, which is two years in a run. I mean... It's kind of insane, you know, the, the fanboy in me still finds that a bit peculiar. I mean, I, I genuinely like Billy's music, but just to have an artist of that scale notice something that we, I am doing is is just a little bit like, you know, even though I'm not a young, young person anymore. But then they said, you know, we'd lo we love the slogan. We'd like to make a statement in the AMAs. You know, could we use it? And it's like, yeah, use as much as you want. You know, fly a plane over there with it on. Do what you like. Paint it on the walls. It's brilliant. Do it. But the fact that 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 she not just she didn't just have this this beautiful like top design with it on in red sequins, but she also, if you look at the photos, made a point of focusing attention on it. It was just remarkable, and it did us no end of favors, obviously, because suddenly everyone was like, "Hold on a minute." What's that? That's a slogan of this lot music declares. Oh, right. So she's a supporter of, you know, and, certain, and pennies started dropping. Then 
And then she stuck it on 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 her behind behind her for the live stream when she did all the good girls go to hell on that live stream in lockdown. So we got a second hit of it, you know. So she and then we did the O2 with her for six nights recently. So she's been unbelievably supportive. I, I cannot speak highly enough of her integrity and her brilliance and her support is vastly appreciated. But there are others as well. There's plenty of other artists. So. You know, there's all kinds of highlights. Foles support is holding up our banner at the Q Awards. You know, Jarvis Cocker doing the same. Fontaine's, the bass player from Fontaine's did this amazing interview for us. Phil Alexander giving us the cover of Kerrang! and helping us curate a whole issue of Kerrang! and bringing in people like Architects and I just, yeah, lots. But the Billy thing stands out because it was the, the moment where it felt like we'd really got everyone's attention for the first time you know and now the slogan's just become a catch-all you see it all over the place and now you see no as i saw recently it can no adverts on the dead planet so yeah keep going you know <laughs> what's the tagline to you then what are you asking people about when when, when you say no music on a dead planet what are you saying <laughs> okay i'll be absolutely honest right we didn't really know yeah, it was classic music industry. I can't even remember how we came to it. But somewhere in a conversation, somebody said, no music on a dead planet. And everybody went, yeah, because <laughs> it sounded cool. That's the truth. It just sounded cool. Um, and then you start to kind of analyse it after the event. I mean, I think why it sounded cool, why it sounds cool, is it's that classic music thing that that is throughout the counterculture where it's actually incredibly nihilistic but somehow it seems uplifting go figure it, it, i think that the strength of the statement is a bit of an air punchy thing it's like a f you kind of thing but also you know you come to realize that that you, you want something that makes people realize what we lose if we don't do something about this and it's quite a stark image but it's true if we don't solve this, there will be no music. There'll be no recording music, no gigs, no power, no nothing. There'll be nothing. There'll just be silence. And that's quite a stark image, but it kind of fits. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what it's come to mean for me and come to mean for us is it's a kind of dystopian vision of the future, but packaged in a kind of very punk kind of front foot forward, let's do something way. That That's my reading of it. But without wishing to get to death of the author about it, I think it means what it means to everybody that uses it. It has different meanings, you know. It's it's become a it's become a kind of like a, you know, a kind of handshake almost. You see it on social media. People will put it at the bottom of their social media posts and then other people will go, oh, they're one of my club. And, you know, it's the little badge, you know. Yeah. Oh, you're one of those music fans. So am I. Yeah. Which is great because that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to bring music fans together and make them feel like they weren't alone, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I um I got to ask as well. I know that we've we've already mentioned Festival Republic. Can you tell mm. me just a little bit more about the the team up there? Of course, it's yeah. great great success for you guys. What what did it mean yeah. to you? It meant a lot. I mean, I worked with Melvin for ten years. I was um, I was the Hall of Nothing did the PR for Reading and Leeds festivals. So when I started there, I. <laughs> it's funny. I, I was like, I'd love to do this. And I think everyone was just a bit tired of doing it. It's a massive job, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So people were like, yeah, all right, <laughs> off you go, kind of thing, get involved. And and I went from getting involved to alongside Terry Hall, to be fair, pretty much running the PR, which I loved. I absolutely loved it because once a year I saw everybody I knew, you know, the, the whole music industry or I talked to the whole music. It was great right on my street i love talking you may have noticed this and i knew malvin obviously very well having worked with him for 10 years I, I i think he's the most incredible person um he we have a very similar kind of background in a, in a way you know he's from hall i'm from blackpool neither are lovely places to come from i mean i love my hometown but it's got its problems i think Hall he would say the same um we 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 both have this kind of thing of being I would argue quite intelligent people, but not we're not disconnected from where we came from. We we have a kind of quite a bluntness about us. We just work very well together, basically. I mean, he's a United fan, but I'll forgive him for that. Um, and, <laughs> and so, I you know, and I was very aware of his commitment 
you know, going back ages, even when I was working with him, and I stopped working with him in 2009, you know, the 10 recycle scheme, the cut recycling schemes, all these things, he, he was a pioneer in all these things. And he got so much flack for it. You know, because people go, oh, you've got a tent recycling scheme, but there's loads of tents. And it's like, yeah, but there's not as many as there would have been. I mean, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. What do you want? You know, that, you know, that's that's the first put down all the time. It's like, well, it's not perfect. It's like, yeah, well, what are you doing? You know, yeah. at least this is doing something. You know, it's the same argument Chris Martin used on the Coldplay tour, and I totally agree with him. So like we won't get all of it right. But even if we get 50% of it right, that's 50% less that we're dealing with, you know. Um, so... You know, to work with Melvin on this is, it, on a personal level, it's really brilliant. Because to work with Melvin on something that I genuinely think could be a game changer for the festival sector, for outdoor live events, is really important. You know, we have a brilliant festival sector, brilliant outdoor live events sector in this country, but we have really specific problems with it because of the way it's grown up. So whereas in other territories and other places, you will find festival sites that that are designed to have festivals on them we don't have that you know our biggest festival is in a farm in somerset you know you know but even reading which is a city centerish site is on a farm you know so if we can find a way to get through the various levels of bureaucracy and ownership uh, and and sheer logistics that involve getting mains power from a substation onto a site and prove it can be done and can show what that means in not just in terms of saved carbon everyone obsesses about carbon it's not just about the carbon for me anyway it's about a progressive way of doing things it's about saving energy it's about transferring to renewable energy it's it's a lot of different things it's almost more important for what it symbolizes than for what it does in the short term because it shows a pathway to do things differently we will do it so i'm not saying if we can do that when we do that we will have provided a way for others to do it it's not you know because the whole point of this is it's not going to be us and festival republic doing it just for festival republic everything we do will be public everything we learn will be public how we do it will be public all the information will be available so if other promoters want to follow that, they can follow it. If they want to pick it up and run with it, they can pick it up and run with it. I hope they do. If they want us to be involved, give us a shout. You know, um, you know, and, and you think forward and you think if we if we can do it for one stage, then why can't we do it for two? You know, once you break the the you know, break the convention, then it's possible to do it across the whole board. Mm. That, that's why it's so exciting and important. It's, uh, it's something everyone's talked about doing for a while and nobody's done. And, and kudos to Melvin for coming to us and going, I want to do this, I want to do it with you. I'll fund the research. You know, I'll grant you the money. Let's do it. Yeah. Nobody else did it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Success after success. And I'm loving it. And, and here's the thing, Lewis. I, I absolutely love your energy. It's not just you, it's it's the rest of the team as well at MDE. Uh, we've listened to the podcast, Sounds Like a Plan. It's something that people can listen to straight after this one as well. I know it's your guys' podcast. And on a whole, the organization comes off very self-aware and relatable, which is sometimes, and don't get this wrong, like don't get me twisted, sometimes environmentalists can come across quite preachy. Uh, and and right. but we, yeah. and I, I understand that. But are you are you purposely thinking about that when you guys represent yourself? Because you guys don't come across that way. Well, I'm not an environmentalist, so that's <laughs> yeah, probably yeah, why. Of course, I mean, I mean, we, we always we always joke that we're we're kind of music industry people that are learning about the environment. I, you know, it's yes, I, I, I to a degree, I agree with you. I mean, I think. You know, if you get me on the subject of, you know, who's better the Stones or the Beatles, I could come across quite preachy. You know what I mean? I think if you're, if you're, if you're, you know, if it's your, <laughs> you know what I mean though? If you're really invested in something and, and you've got to bear in mind, you know, we talk to, the, the other weird thing about doing MDE is you talk to people you never thought you'd talk to. So you start talking to somebody from the IPCC, like, you know, climate scientist who's done 20 years of climate modeling and, and you're like trying to hold your own in this conversation going, Oh really? Mm, yeah. No idea what you're talking about, <laughs> but it sounds terrifying. Um, 
so I, I think that, I mean, that's essentially why we wanted to get involved, because I, I think there's a certain amount of humility that needs to needs to to happen for this to work. I mean, I think this is general. This is probably a generally good idea for all kind of cultural, political changes is to think about, you know, am I really the best person to have this conversation? There's not a lot of that goes on at the moment. Um, so in a sense, our role is is to do that job, you know, is to. You know, was it Alison who runs JB, Julie's Bicycles? <laughs> she said this, and I think it's perfect. She said, the great thing about culture is it can take a really complex idea and it can make it really simple, yeah? So in a sense, that's what MDE does. It, it takes these complex ideas that can lose people or, you know, people that, you know, can get quite defensive if they feel they're being talked down to. And, you know, sometimes trying to explain a really complex idea if you are... A, you know, somebody who understands the complex idea. It, it's hard to not sound patronising even when you're trying your best not to. So if we act as a kind of barrier between the two or, or, or as a kind of translator, that's the better word. If we act as a translator between the two, then that's great because that's what we're trying to do. I mean, I think most people don't need to genuinely don't need to understand like the intricacies of climate change and what's happening and why carbon emissions are driving heat or why topsoil isn't sustaining because of the use of pesticides and industrial farming or why I think most people, the one thing most people do grasp is fish stocks because they go lots of fish, take them all away, less fish. Okay. That's the one thing you can understand. But then you start talking about things like ocean acidification and, you know, and it's too cold for the fish or it's too warm for the fish and people's heads just explode and they go, I don't get it. How can it be too cold and too warm at the same time? You know, that classic response to, to climate change that you get in winter where it's like, well, it's clearly not happening because it's bloody cold today. And you're like, you haven't really grasped it. So, you know, in a sense, I think it's important that there's people in the conversation who can find a way to go, look, don't worry about all that crap. You know, there's a trust issue there as well. You know, the COVID was interesting as an eye-opener to be doing this when COVID happened because no one, well, nobody, there were some people, but the vast majority of people, when Chris Whitty was his name, came on television, didn't go, I don't believe a bloody word of it. They went, oh, right, okay, we'll do that then, yeah. yeah? And we kind of need that to happen with climate change. We kind of just need people to go, okay, I accept that's happening, although I think we've got that. What we need now is for people to there's a there's a kind of backward forward process we need the people who control the systems to say okay we accept it's happening and we're genuinely going to do these things yeah which isn't happening at the moment hence you know cop 26 lots of talk not much delivery um but at the same time you need the people they're talking to to go okay we give you permission to do that and at the moment, I do think there are some people who would like to change the systems in political structures, not just here, but across the world, who are reticent to do that because they think if they try and do it, the people, the, the electorate will go, oh, no, and then they, they won't have any power. So there's this really complex thing. And if we can sit in the middle of that and disabuse some of the, the, the kind of myths and take away some of the kind of complexities and make people feel that they have a say and they're being listened to, then that's great. Without government legislation, though, there's still a long way to go. And without government legislation, there, there's no yeah. point. I mean, it's just it's so the you issue know, the, can, can it can it be taken seriously? Do you know what I mean? It's quite it's quite hard can, there. Can what be, the can what be taken? We're, we're trying to, of course, turn the music industry uh, on its head. Do you know what I mean? And so I, of course. I get that you're taking it seriously. I'm taking it seriously. I may, mm. I may find that the conversation's easier to have because I'm, well, I'm 29 years old, but a lot of people at my age get it, and a lot of people younger yeah. get it. But, yeah. but yeah. can can the overall structure, like, of course, when Chris Wheatley comes on stage and talks about a virus spreading and people dying, people are taking him seriously mm. straight away. So, so yeah. how how do we get it without the 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 big man at number ten or whoever's taken over, um, or the big one. exactly, or, or the big they? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, you, you know what? Anything but okay, him. So, um, but how can it be taken seriously? Right. So, <laughs> political theory time, I suppose. But look, yeah. the thing with COVID was people took it seriously because they could see it. Yeah, 
They took it seriously because if they hadn't got it or somebody they knew hadn't got it, they knew of somebody who had got it, yeah? And 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 apart from the old person who say, oh, I know, so my Uncle Jack had it and he was fine. He was up running two days later. Most people knew somebody who was quite ill with it, let's be honest, yeah? And and also there was evidence. You saw the, you know, the, the, the hospital wards and you saw the news coverage and whatever, yeah? If the climate had that level of attention then it, people would take it seriously. The problem at the moment is that we are caught in a situation where things that are attributable to climate are not being attributed to climate. So, for instance, outside today, phew, what a scorcher. No, it's not a scorcher. It's unseasonably hot weather, again, for the ninth year in a run. So, you know, what we're trying to do is shift the conversation. We're trying to push the cultural envelope. And I think it's working. Yeah. I genuinely think it is working. You know, uh, I think we can do it on our own and we're not going to be the thing that does it. There are all kinds of other players in here from scientists and other climate charities and environmental charities and politicians and so forth. But what we can do in our space is use that huge power of the music industry to reach people who either, as I keep saying, don't fill a part of the conversation or don't want to engage with it because the beauty of music is it can reach anyone. So I, I like to, this is my favorite fact. We are the only charity in the world that is supported by Julian Lloyd Webber and Napalm Death. Show me anybody else who has that level, that, that range of support, you know, and, and it, I'm being flippant, but there's a serious point. Yeah, of course. Is, is that, we have, in theory, the opportunity with artists who are obviously supportive and engaged to reach people across the board. Music is theoretically a universal thing. You rarely meet anyone. I've met one person in my life who went, I don't really like music. And I didn't spend much time talking to them because I'm deeply suspicious of anybody who says that. Because um, it's just weird. I mean, I'm not expecting you to be like mad about it, but you don't like tunes. I mean, then there's all kinds of like weird platitudes you can come up with. Like, you know, we can't sing the same song, but we can hum the same tune, which I came out with in some like workshop and everyone oh uh, stop it but there's a point there as well you know because this isn't just a uk thing this is an international thing which is why we've, we've got groups springing up all over the world um and you know without wishing to get too like man the barricades there is potential here for music to build a global community of ordinary people that all feel that they have a connectivity to each other and, and ultimately what that does, if it works, is it reflects back into the system. Because if you can convince the people that need to make the change that they won't get into the seat unless they make the change, then you're nearly halfway there to making it happen. What you then have to do is make sure that when they get the seat, they do what they promise. So it might take a little bit longer. But ultimately, it's about public opinion. You know, it's the, the argument, I, not argument, the conversation I had with somebody who said, about something oh, it's to do with furlough. And they said, well, you know, they, they, they did they did spend all that money, you know, you know, making sure everybody was all right. And I was like, you realise it's our money. Yeah, it's not their money. It's like, it's not, it's not a criticism of politicians. It's just an, an observation of how we look at the political system. You know, the person I was talking to was almost like Rishi Sunak had like gone to the bank and taken out like, you know, a million quid and gone, and there's 10 for you and 10 for you. And aren't I a nice man? It's like, no, it's not how it works. They're managing our money. And it's the same thing here. You know, people go, it will cost this much. It's like, but it's not a domestic bill we're looking at here. And there's all kinds of arguments about how much it will cost if you don't do it. But the point is, if you think it's worth doing, then it's your money that's going to be spent on it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's trying to, 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 to get into those spaces. And the best way I can explain why I think it's working is Billie Eilish at the O2 was fascinating to watch because that was the first time I've seen an artist have a joined up approach across her show. So it wasn't just Billy and her management. It was the promoter and the agent and the venue. They were all on the same page. So the O2 went vegan for six days. Now, you could kind of go, oh, it's just like, you know, tokenism. It's just like virtue signaling. Well, no, she's a vegan and she believes in it. So she did it. It was an interesting experiment. I was there for two of those nights, or actually three in the end. And I 
was wondering, will people complain? Because it's a mainstream audience, by and large. I mean, you know, probably the kids wouldn't, but what about the parents with them? Because there was a lot of parents with younger kids. Nobody said a word. Nobody said a word. They just got on with it. You know, some people said it was brilliant. I didn't hear a single person go, what do you mean I can't have a beef burger? It just didn't happen. You know, and it's partly because it was they were just presented with a different option. And it's partly because it was evident throughout everything from the moment you got off the tube all the way to the venue that those were the values of the show you were coming to but they were presented in a way that was inclusive rather than finger waggy yeah so you know that's the power there's 120,000 people that were exposed to that and another great example of it from outside music is Dale Vince who runs Forest Green Rovers he also owns Ecotricity I think He's a chairman of Forest Green Rovers. He told me this story where when he took over the football club, he said to the fans, I want to bring in vegan food because Dale's a vegan. And the football fans quite reasonably went, no, 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 you're not doing that. You know, leave our burgers alone kind of thing. And he said, OK, well, I'll tell you what, I'll bring in the vegan food. I'll keep your normal food, but I'll bring in the vegan food. And you can try the vegan food for free. Yeah. Oh, you can just get your normal food. Right. And after however many weeks, can't remember, tell me what you prefer. And because he made sure the vegan food was great, the fans, by and large, I'm sure there were some people that didn't, but the way he's been told to me, the fans went, actually, that's better. Can we have that from now on? And now all the catering at Forest Green Rovers is vegan. And, you know, again, it, that's not going to save the world. You know, you know, 2,000 Forest Green Rovers fans not having a hot dog isn't going to save the world. But it's not about that. It's about what it symbolises. It's about people looking at things a different way. It's about people having a different experience. And it's also, again, about being inclusive. It's about not being top down. It's about saying, okay, I respect your position, but here's mine. Do you want to see what it feels like to try my coat for a bit? And if you like my coat, you can keep my coat. And that's kind of what we're always trying to do in Music Declares. We're not telling people what to do. We're saying to people, this is how we see it. We want to know how you see it. These people here are going to help us have the conversation with you. And let's see what you come out of the conversation like. And, and you know, we are now seriously thinking about starting to work with fans as well, because we have a lot of emails and contact from fans going, how do I get involved? And we're like, well, we never really thought about that. <laughs> Maybe we should do that too, because we're just not that busy. And, you know, it's like, but in a, on a serious note, that's the end game is this community of engaged music fans who share values. And I see it all the time, big Idols fan. I'm part of the AF gang, which is Idols diehard fans, or there's millions of them. Oh, yeah. But I see it all the time, people being beautiful to each other. You know, somebody will post, I'm in a terrible day, or somebody will post something serious, like my grand just died. 20 people will come in and help and lift them up. That's kind of where music becomes really powerful, you know? Yeah. That kind of community of people that... See somebody wearing your favourite band T-shirt, you know you're going to be kind of vaguely all right with them, don't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But if you see anyone wearing a United top, I imagine you step away. No, I don't. I just ask them if they're from London. <laughs> right, Lewis. I got, I got one more. Uh, I got one more question for you. But this has been a fantastic interview, and I just want to roll out. Can I just qualify that? I can I just I, that wasn't a dig at United fans. I know some of you are from Manchester. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, I uh, I wanted to roll out the red carpet for you right now. Where can we find you? Where can we find uh, Music uh, Declares Emergency? Where can we find everything? Uh, Instagram, Twitter, and where can we help and support? Right. So all the socials are on the handle at Music Declares. Awesome. Nice. Um, the website is musicdeclares.net. Um, and on the website is an email address that will get to me. And if you work in the music industry, I'm on LinkedIn. And I, for my sins, I actually find LinkedIn quite useful. So do, do by all means, connect with me on LinkedIn because I actually do use it. Yeah, fantastic. Right. My final question for you. I know um, you've mm. got a, a lot of advice online, um, and I, I hope this this podcast can kind of – encourage people and maybe they could take action today i would like you to give one piece of advice maybe that someone could think about or take action today what would it be 
uh, to people working in the music to, industry. To people working in the music industry or people people as a, as a whole. What what would you say to them today? Well, to people working in the music industry, I would say have a look at your company and if it isn't doing something, ask the question why. And if it is doing something, ask what it's doing and start to think about what it could do next. Not could it do more, but what it could do next. And feel free to have a conversation with us about your company being part of our lovely little kind of gang of people. Not so, not so little these days. Individually, use your voice. Don't get caught up in this personal carbon footprint nonsense that the BP and Shell created 25 years ago to make it all your fault. Don't get caught up in that. I mean, obviously, you know, don't leave all the lights on and, you know, run the taps and, you know, I don't know, chop down the tree in the garden. You know, don't be deliberately maliciously contrary about it, you know, um, but but use your voice. That's the big thing. You know, this, this idea that it's individuals kind of mission to, to save the world. We're not going to do it as individuals. We're going to do it collectively. We're going to have to do it systemically. Um, and we're going to have to do it through compromise and agreement. I mean, ultimately, we're going to have to start having conversations, I think, this is personal opinion, about whether it's justified for everybody to have a car. You know, if the purpose of a car is to get you from A to B, if the public transport could get you from A to B, do you need a car? Really? You know, I don't know. It's an interesting conversation, at least. You know, but but to, to have those conversations, to have that kind of level of, Okay, well, I'll consider it. I'm not saying you're right, but I'll consider it. We, we need to find ways to, to build communities that, that accept that not everybody thinks the same. And, and arguably, the last 10 years have been a process of everybody going in the opposite direction from that, which is handily kind of useful for those, of, those people who don't want to address this problem that, you know, everybody's shouting at each other rather than talking. If, so, so use your voice, but don't use it to tell people they're wrong. Use it to ask people why they think you're wrong. <laughs> and hopefully you can have a conversation, you know? You've been listening to Almost Famous, a music industry podcast powered by The Famous Company. If you're an independent artist or music industry professional, for more information, head to www.thefamouscompany.com.